So we've looked at in Genesis 1 the nature of God, and in Genesis 2 the nature of man. Unfortunately, in chapter 3 we're going to begin to look at the nature of sin, and things are going to take a sharp turn. The last thing we saw in, in chapter 2, the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. One of the first things we're going to see once sin comes in is shame will also come. And the unity that's meant for this marital relationship will begin to be broken up right away. That is part of Satan's design, is to attack man by attacking his relationships, his relationship with God, his relationship with his fellow man. And certainly if he can break up the marriage and the home, he can break up society, and he can break up God's plan to bring us together. And so we'll see him making that attack early on. So we'll begin with our reading, verses 1 through 5. If someone would take that reading, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Thank you, Don. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So we learn something interesting about this serpent here. <laughs> There's this serpent that's more cunning, more crafty, uh, more uh, conniving with his intellect than any other creature the Lord God had made, the, the creatures of the field, not man, obviously. And he shows his cunning in several ways. One of them is by speaking, and speaking fairly craftily. Wherever this serpent is, or whatever this serpent is, the Bible really doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, certainly not here. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, we are told that that dragon that's cast out of heaven is that serpent of old, this serpent from, the, from, the, uh, from Genesis 3, that is the devil or Satan. We're given his name. So we can be certain that serpent here is talking about Satan. Now, whatever other aspect of that, really the Bible doesn't tell us. We can infer that he must have either flown or walked in some way because the curse will be that it will go on his belly. certainly sounds like what we would call a serpent or a snake today. There's something different about this one because I've never heard a serpent or snake speak uh, unless you're watching Harry Potter and there's something in there, but that's not the same thing as this. And so whatever this is, we can't be exact, but I'm just going to say this is Satan. That's the, the thing I know for sure from Revelation 12. So we'll be treating the serpent here. I may say serpent, I may say Satan or the devil, but that's who we're dealing with here at least. Whether he has uh, somehow embodied a physical creature, we certainly know that some uh, demonic beings and angelic beings even can take on some kind of a physical form. Whether that's what's happened here, or if this is some animal that's been beguiled in some way to do these things, I don't know. And we could speculate and go off in false doctrines about it, but again, God has revealed only this. Let's stay with what we do know, and let's work from that. And there's a lot we can work from here. So I know it's a temptation sometimes to get off on these doctrines of Satan. The Bible just hasn't done that, so let's stay away from that. At any rate, the serpent is cunning and says to the woman something. Actually, ask a question. I want to submit to you that actually there's two questions here. Did you notice that? What's the first question? We're still in verse 1. What's the first question? Has God, there's a word in there, has God indeed said, fill in the blank? That's a question in and of itself. The fill in the blank part is another question. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? But I want you to analyze that first part of the question first, because that's really crafty. 
It's really tricky, and it's something that people do all the time. Something I did as an atheist. Does the God that says he's love, and the God that says he's power and grace, does he really say, you can't eat shellfish? <laughs> what a weird thing for a God to say. Because I'm really wanting to get to, has he really said you can't love a man like you love a woman? Was your God say that? Well, if you believe that, then you can't eat shellfish. I've made those arguments, and I've heard those arguments. Has God that says he is loved really said he wants Israel to go in and kill every woman and child and man and all the animals in these nations? Did the God you love say that? Did he really say that? Has he indeed said that? And so it makes you start thinking, what, what? would God say something? The God I believe in, would the God I believe in say something like that? And so it begins, and what it's meant to, to do is to begin to make you doubt God's goodness. When someone comes along and says, you know that God you believe in in the Bible? He said some pretty nasty things. And we've learned up to this point, chapter 1, over and over and over and over, that God is only capable of good. And he looks at his creation and says, that is good, that is good. The bad comes when people do not obey his orders, and disorder comes in. There's a God that's so good that you believe in, will he allow disorder? He will. And we'll see there's a purpose even to that later on. But that first question is meant to make you start to doubt whether God is really good in his intentions. Has God indeed said that woman has to be a servant of man? Not exactly what he said. But he also said a man has to serve his wife. And so, yeah, that's in there. And then, well, was he just being mean to me? And so it sounds like the little kid who said, did dad really say that? And try to figure out a way around it. And that's what happens when we start thinking that way. So the first question was, did God really say this? And then, did he really say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice what he did with that question. <laughs> he twisted it. Did God say, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did he? What did he say in Genesis 2.16? Of every tree, every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So God's instruction was generic and clear and freedom. And Satan came along and put the word not in there. And made it look like restriction and prison. But I want you to think about what Satan did because this is when we get smarter than God and we start thinking like this. And Satan makes us do this. He asks these has he indeed said questions. Did not did God say you can eat of every tree in the garden? What do you say in verse 17? Don't eat this one. And so while God uh, couch the language of his command in freedom language. Eat everything. I made this for you. But just avoid this one. Isn't that much nicer than saying, I don't want you eating every tree of the garden. I want you to eat 99% of them. But don't eat. And then we think that's a restriction. So you think about marriage language. <laughs> you be married to this one woman for your whole life. That's, that's a freeing thing. There really is freedom in that. It's a blessing to know the truth. The truth will set you free. And so you're not worried about all the other possibilities things that can happen because God's word reveals what he wants. You just do that. It's simple. But some people will say, the same woman every day for the rest of my life? There was a scene from this uh, the police squad movies where they were talking about uh, police Dreb, uh, Lieutenant Drebb was going to get married, and the guy was trying to describe marriage. He said, you wake up every day next to the same woman, eating the same food in the same house, and he makes it sound terrible. Now, to me, that sounds like a blessing, and it's supposed to sound like a blessing, but he was really intentionally painting it like this terrible thing, and you see the guy's face kind of drop. Oh, I didn't think about it like that. But that's the way the world wants us to think about the restrictions of God. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How freeing it is 
not to have to worry myself when all these things come up, how I'm going to deal with them, because God already said, this is what I want you to do in those situations. That's freeing. I don't have to ask a bunch of questions and figure out what's going on. I just have to say, God said do this, and so I'll do it. And then I'm free. It sounds restricting to some people. But God's rules, God's law was meant to govern us in freedom to be able to do what we ought to be able to do in serving him. But Satan wants us to look at the one thing that God restricted and say, marriage sounds terrible. I can't just do what I want. I've got to stay with this one woman. Or in this case, I can't eat of every tree in the garden because there's one I can't. And so God's freedom begins to look like a prison because of that crafty little question. And did you notice how much it took for him to change God's words? One word. In Hebrew, it's maybe just one letter with a little thing that dictates that there's a vowel sound on there. Nothing hardly at all. In English, it's not. In Portuguese, it's only two letters. It's really small what he did here. But let's watch the woman's response. He says, did God indeed say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What did the woman say? Verse 2. Yeah, God said we can. What else does she say? But Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest, lest you die. Is that what God said? What did she say? Yes, but what did she say about that? Yes, and what else did she say? There's something specific she says in verse 3 that's so subtle that it's exactly what people do. Yeah? Who did she say said that? God said But of the tree in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say that? No, he didn't. But she believes that. She somehow convinced herself this is what God has said. What God said we have recorded here. Now, I don't believe this is a case. It may be a case of where Adam didn't pass the instruction on properly. That doesn't come up later when God condemns Adam, though. I believe this is a case of her making some restrictions around that law and believing then that God put that there. Today we call that religion. That's what people do with religion. They build a wall around God's laws. I've dealt a lot in Brazil with uh, some of the charismatic or Pentecostal religions that would say it is a sin to have a television in your house. That's not a sin. It is a sin what's done on television sometimes. Some of the programs people are watching on television, and there are sinful things there, but what you learn is turn the channel. Turn away from that. But what happens when you make this rule that it's a sin to have a television in your house? What I discovered among people I knew that had that law, they would go to your house and watch it, and they would watch terrible things on it because it wasn't at their house. It's a sin to have it at their house. And so what ends up happening is because of their religious belief and their religious construction, They haven't trained their heart according to God's law not to look at things they shouldn't. They've just taken away this thing from their home and then they'll go and they'll look at things they shouldn't when they're somewhere else. They've never trained their heart. Colossians, Paul talks about that. I want you to to look at this real quick. Because this is an issue. When people begin to create their own doctrines and believe that God said it. We're going to see why it's such a terrible issue later. But Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and following. Paul is talking to these people who are trying to fall back into following Jewish rituals, things that have been done away with now in Christ. He says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, 
according to the commandments and doctrines of men. This is not even God's Jewish law. This is the traditions now that men had set up. And he says in verse 23, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. God's word is meant to train us in righteousness. It's meant to change who we are. So if we follow his word, the end result is a product that is different. But when we come to something that we don't really understand or don't really want to do the way God says, and we just kind of build a hedge around it and say, we'll just do this instead, we never trained ourselves in the thing that God was pointing at. So when that hedge comes down, we go full bore and descend because we haven't been trained against. There's been no value against the indulgence of the flesh. God's word will train us if we'll allow it to. So she has said, God has said, I can't even touch that tree. So in essence, a thing that she set up as being good, and I believe there, in essence there's something good to it, I'm not even going to tempt myself with eating, I'm not even going to get close enough to touch it. But she's then said, God told her that when he hasn't. So what's going to happen when she touches it and doesn't die? Yes, ma'am. How did they tend it if they weren't allowed to touch it? They were supposed to tend every that's a good question. I don't know. She's got this rule that she can't touch it. Maybe that is something she's not doing that she should be doing. But she's made this rule and, and, and attributed it to God. And that's what that's what I'm getting at. That's religion. When we start making these rules and then we say, but God said this. Great. Do you have a comment? Yeah. And you, you've kind of made this point. Um, but there, there may at times be wisdom in us setting some personal boundaries. Sure. You know, if, if I know that I have a struggle with something, I'm going to be tempted by something. There, there may be some wisdom in me removing myself from, from a situation where I might be tempted. But when we start drawing lines and saying, well, God has drawn, drawn, drawn this line, uh, then we've become like the Pharisees. We've, we've made yeah. laws that God has not made. Yeah, and Jesus, when the Pharisees accused him of sinning by not washing his hands, he said they were keeping the traditions of the elders. That's not what God had said to do. But they accused him of sin over that, or even of the way he was eating the grains on the, in the grain field. That wasn't sinful what he was doing, but it was to them. Because they said, God said, you can't do that. And so a religion became the focus unto itself, and they weren't even doing them what God said to do. And that's the problem. And that's what it seems that she's done here. She's put this barrier up that she can't even then get to do what God has said to do. But I want you to think about what's going to happen when she crosses that line and does touch it. Because the serpent's going to tempt her to do that. He's not going to, it's going to show all the detail here. But if she touches that tree and doesn't die... Then what happens is she's emboldened to think, well, God lied about that because she believes God said don't touch it. Then she's going to eat it, and she is going to die. And in my experience, people that come out of these religions with what they call in Brazil strong doctrines, where they have all these, these terrible lists of things you have to do, when people come out of that and discover their freedom in Christ, what usually they do then is they go full bore in the other direction, and their freedom means I can do whatever I want, and I'll just say I'm a Christian, and they're no longer serving God. They go lost in sensuality and all kinds of problems. And they fall away terribly. People who at first lived and breathed talking about God reject him completely when they tear down the man-made religious impositions and then they don't understand what freedom is. Paul talked about that to the Galatians and the Colossians both. Don't let your freedom become a cloak for, for liberty doing things against God's will. You have been freed from the law, but then be freed to serve Christ according to the inward man, not according to uh, these externals that they perish with the using. So she's created this extra law. It says God has told her she can't even touch it. I believe she's wrong in that, obviously. And the serpent, what he learns from her answer is a couple of things. One, his first question is messed with. Her. As God indeed said, she's starting to 
doubt God's goodness a little bit by the way she responds. And the second, she spent a lot of time thinking about that tree. <laughs> he can tell she's been making doctrines about it, so that's what's on her mind. And that's what usually happens, unfortunately, with these with the religious kind of view. You spend a lot of time thinking about what you can't do and what the negatives are. Think about a lot of these megachurches where people get up and give their testimonials and talk about how many years they used drugs and how long they were into all these. And they, that's all they talk about, and they don't keep talking about what God is. And they're not preaching God, they're preaching the sin that they were involved in. And that creates temptations in the mind of some others. That's exalting something that's not good. And it's focusing in the wrong place. So the serpent looks at her and says, you will not surely die. Did you notice that's the second time he has taken the word of God and quoted it, but inserted one word. It's the same word both times. He just put the word not. He's quoted exactly what, what God said. <coughs> you shall eat of every tree of the garden, is what God said. He said, you shall not. You shall surely die. He said, you shall not. What does it take to make a false doctrine? We tend to think it takes a lot. you got to remove a lot of stuff or add a lot of stuff. The Bible says very clearly, what's that? You have to either take out a truth or add a truth, or just put one little word in it changes it. That's all it took here, and the same word twice. Anytime it's not God's word, then it's not God's word. If I put the no in there, then it's not God's word anymore. If I take a no out, it's not God's word anymore. And that's what Satan has done here with the very simple word has changed God's doctrine to make it mean exactly the opposite of what God had said. But he knows he's not going to get away with that, really. So what does he do? Verse 5, Satan invents theology. <laughs> and I want you to understand what I mean by theology. I'm not talking about really understanding and studying God's Word. I believe we need to be doing that. But theology that's, that's couched in theology is really basically trying to say, here's what the Bible says, but here's why it doesn't mean what it says. That's the kind of modern theology we're dealing with. It's not that modern, but it's what Satan does here. And uh, I've had enough of theology to understand that that's what's going on. People that claim to love God and begin to teach theology that, that pleases man don't love God. They're seeking to please men. Satan says here, there's an issue behind this. It's not that you're going to die. That's not what God's worried about, that you're going to die, that something bad would happen to you. God is worried because he knows when you eat of that, your eyes are going to be open. And you'll be like God knowing good and evil. What a temptation that is all of a sudden. God is afraid you're going to know the things he does. And so he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. God wants to still be God. And if you eat from it, you'll be God. The philosopher Nietzsche admitted that was his issue. I can't believe in a God because if I believe in him, I'll want to be him. <laughs> and that's so much a part of human nature. Nietzsche died sad and dejected because he rejected God. Died in absolute horror of what was coming. <laughs> And it's worse than he believed. But Satan says that God is being selfish in some way. I like what he says, though, because there are some truths even in this. And this is the deceitfulness of sin. In the day they eat of it, will their eyes be opened? We'll see in just a moment that absolutely they will. There's truth to that. But that's not always a good thing. I have a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Are there things that I know that I could tell them and open their eyes about? Absolutely. Would it be good for them right now? It would be destructive. It would be terrible for them. It's not that I'm being mean or cruel or I just want to know more than they do. They're not ready for it yet. There are things they don't need to know. Jesus told the apostles on the night of his death, there is much I'd like to reveal to you, but you can't handle it now. After I'm dead and resurrected, then you'll be able to understand it. 
It's not that God's being mean when he withholds things from us. He's a father. He loves us and he wants to protect us and he wants us to, to give us things that will help us to grow and at the right time and in the right way. There are things they don't need to know. So that is true, though. Their eyes would be opened. And will they be like God? Well, how did God make them? <laughs> in his image, in his likeness. So they're already like God in the way that God wants them to be like God. Remember I said before, not everything God does is exactly what we're going to do. We're not God. We're human. We're different than he is. But what he tells us to do, yes, that'll make us be like him. That'll draw us to be like him. When we presume to be gods, the ironic thing is we become less godlike. And what's going to happen to them when they try to eat from this tree to get that knowledge that God has, it really ironically makes them become less like God by trying to become like God. That's a problem. Gary, Brady? In verse 22, God himself will say, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. So there is one sin. In this aspect, yes. Yeah, there is one sense in which they become more like God. But in every way that mattered, yeah. they became less like God. I, I've always thought that um, it's not that God wanted them to stay ignorant, but it's that God wanted to teach them from his mouth, yeah. not from an experiential knowledge of evil itself. Absolutely, and that's one, of, that's one of the points. I appreciate you bringing that out. It is more than just knowledge that makes us like God. It is not a lack of knowledge that makes us not like God. It's our character and what our heart does with what we know. And so, so many religious people and religious leaders need to know that, need to learn that. It's not just because you know a bunch about the Bible that makes you more like God. Some of the most ungodly people I've met could quote the Bible better than I can, but they're not willing to submit themselves to doing what it says. It makes a difference how we approach what we know. And God wants that knowledge to be built in, not just from some experience of ours, but from him teaching it to us. You're right, absolutely. So there is an irony to this, that they will be like God in this aspect. And how will they be like God, according to him? Knowing good and evil. Think about this for a second. What do they know up to this point in the garden? Good. What can they possibly gain from eating from this tree? What's the only thing? The knowledge of evil. That's it. But that is the temptation. Most of us in here have been teenagers before. <laughs> Most of us have gone through that process. There is a time in our lives when just knowing something that our parents said we shouldn't know, that's the temptation. <laughs> or that the society says is not good for us, that becomes a temptation. That's how Proverbs starts. My son, when they entice you to come with them, don't go. <laughs> you, I've been there, don't do it. Because that's an enticement. There is. And we're going to face it. There's a temptation to want to go along with what everybody else is doing, even if we know inherently that it's wrong. And so, I mean, no one who becomes a heroin addict or, or an alcoholic or whatever kind of addictions there are does that thinking, I'm going to do this because I want to become this addict. There's some enticement and they fall into that. And then they learn something that they can't unlearn. They can't get their innocence back. And sometimes it, it becomes addicting to them. And so... God doesn't want them to have access to this for their good, not because he's hiding something from them. It's not good for them to have this access. Just as we as good parents don't hide things from our kids, we just they don't need to know this yet. Eventually there may come a time when they'll need it. So the irony here is there is truth in what the serpent is saying here. But it's a truth that God uh, has, has withheld for his purposes. It's not something that they should experience for themselves and that serpent should certainly entice them into, uh, into experiencing so watch what happens here. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What does the woman do with this information then that the serpent gives her, this theology? The first thing we've noticed is that he's tried to shake her faith in God with this question, as God indeed said. What happens when we no longer trust the word of God? What do we use as a basis for for judging things, for analyzing things? What do we have as a basis? Our own perspective, our human experience, and our own wisdom, and the wisdom of others. Perhaps she hasn't got anybody else to talk to except her husband. So did you see what she did? She looked. So we we begin to base things on ourselves and our perspective. When she saw that the tree was good for food, so, you know, God made these trees that are pleasant to the eyes and good for food. looks like this was both. (laughs) It was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit. This is exactly how the Bible talks about men getting themselves into trouble. Look at Romans chapter 1. That is amazing. Paul talks about this twice just in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, she knows God. She knows his revealed will for her. Yet she willfully rejects that because she's having this experience of looking at this thing for herself. So I want to start in verse 18 of Romans 1. I'm going to read down to about 25 or so. And I want you to notice that what she did is what Paul says that we all do. It's his truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And here's what they did. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's what what Eve did. (laughs) That's what all of us at some point have done. Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the Jews, being ignorant or unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God, have created their own righteousness, and they've rejected the righteousness of God. We all do that. We exchange the truth of God for the lie, and we think, well, now that I don't believe that, I've got to have a basis for what I believe. Even atheists do that. I have a basis for what I believe, and it's going to be human experience. It's going to be science. It's going to be whatever it is. If it's not the word of God, it's not going to end well. (laughs) Eve has gone to her human experience. And so she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, and she saw that it would make her wise. Did you notice those three things? Yes, Eric? I was just thinking, is this the first time that uh, other than God, someone else defines something as good? So that when man finds things as good without God, this is what it leads to. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. She's seeing this as good. Yeah, I didn't even think about that particular word there. But yeah, she's defining this for herself as being good. And that's exactly what Romans 10 says the Jews did. They created their own righteousness. They saw this was good for them, and they rejected God's righteousness. That's an excellent point. Great, did you have a uh, side comment there? Yeah. Okay. So I want you to notice, yes, Jerome. Yeah, I was going to say, I was thinking about... uh, 
First John, uh, the second chapter. Yes, we're going to get there. Just say, hold on, oh, just say, I want you to ruin. Now let's steal my thunder. But we are getting there. Hold that, hold that verse open. Okay. Hold it, I'm going to call in just a second. Okay. Did you see what happened here? What three things was she tempted by? Look. She looked at the pleasantness of it. So there's there's this desire of the eyes. What was the first one? Good for food, the lust of the flesh. And then what's the third one? This pride of life, this, this desire for this knowledge that God hasn't revealed. Those are three things there, right? The thing is, within themselves, these are all good desires. Uh, because God, in chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, created every tree to be pleasant in sight. created every tree good for food. And uh, as we said, it's not that he wanted man to be a fool. He, he was going to teach man. There's a legitimate uh, outlet for these desires. And fulfillment, much greater fulfillment for these desires. Because when we try to fulfill those desires in some way outside of God's plan, that it really leaves us empty. Absolutely. Yeah, because we're trying to do something that, that God hasn't sanctioned, uh, even in things that God will sanction. So, yeah, we haven't gone by his, his route to do it. And so, absolutely right. Again, we're not training ourselves in righteousness by him. Uh, and so it becomes an unrighteous pursuit, even of a good thing. That's a strange thing to think about. But again, the Jews sought after righteousness, but they did it in an unrighteous way. And they rejected the righteousness that comes from God. Seeking righteousness is a good thing. There are lots of examples of people that were seeking for the presence of God by going into idolatry. The, sought, the seeking for the presence of God is a good thing. But they went by by means that were not godly, and, it, and they became evil. They became terrible. So go ahead, Jerome. First, first John chapter 2, verses 15 to 7. Is that where you were going? Yes, it was. All right. Look at the three things that John says the world offers us. Um, so do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. Now I want you to think about this. This, to me, is super important. Because what we're learning about sin and about Satan is that he's got a very limited arsenal. He's good with it, been doing it since the beginning of time, but it's very limited. It's limited to three aspects. The same thing he used to tempt Eve here, 1 John 2 says is what he uses to tempt us. It's the lust of the flesh. The appetites of the flesh includes not only hunger for food, but other appetites of the flesh, other hungers. But anything that even self-preservation and the persecution in the book of Revelation, you may lie to preserve your life. Peter says, be willing to give a response to all who, who call on, who ask you, and they may be coming with a sword while you're ready to give that response. That's the context of uh, Peter talking, talking about that, is persecution. Be ready to give them a response for the hope that's in you, even if it means you're going to die while you're giving that response. That's hard. We want to self-preserve. That's a lust of the flesh. It's part of that. The lust of the eyes. You, you see this, and just because it's beautiful, you want it. And then this desire to know, this pride of life, this desire to know things that God hasn't revealed. That's, we've talked about that several times already. In here. So, does that sound familiar, those three things? You read Luke chapter 4? What happens in Luke 4? Jesus. Jesus being tempted. What are the three temptations? If you are the Son of God, make these stones become bread. He's been 40 days without eating. Isn't that the lust of the flesh? You've got to be hungry. 
show me that you're the son of God. And he said, no, I, you don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. So he turned it on the spiritual. What was the second one? You remember? What's that? That's the third one. It may be in a different order in Luke, but that's one of them. We'll come back to that one because I want to do them in the order there in First John. And the beauty of them, or the glory of them. Yes, he took him up and showed them all the kingdoms. If you'll just bow down before me, then all this can be yours. So the lust of the eyes, it was the beauty and the, and the, the having of that. And then the last one was, yes, he threw him on, on the, the, the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down, and he quoted scripture. Because God will, he won't let you dash your, your foot on a rock. He'll, the angels will hold you up. And that's what a lot of people try to do. Well, I, know, I know more about what God meant in this text than what God said he meant. So he's not going to let anything bad happen to me. That, that Jeremiah passage about the angels being camped around one of the Psalms also. You know, oh, I'm, God's just going to protect me in whatever I do. Well, Jesus said, I'm not going to tempt the Lord my God. I know the Bible says that. And Satan, of course, took it way out of context. And Jesus said, I'm not going to tempt the Lord my God. And so it was the same three temptations. The point is, here in the garden, Satan used three temptations. Centuries, millennia later with Jesus, he used three temptations. And John said, hey, watch out, there's three temptations. Think about any sin that you know, anything you've struggled with, anything you know that people struggle with, anything in the Bible, it'll fit in one of those three categories. Now, I'm not saying Satan's not good and subtle at bringing some branch off of that, one of those things, and making that be the, the thorn in our side that, that, that troubles us, but it's going to be one of those three. And so, in a sense, we can disarm Satan. If we already know where he's coming from, then we know we've got to watch our flesh. Paul said, I, I buffet my body. So that as I preach others, I don't become disqualified. He's taking care of the lust of the flesh and trying not to let that be a stumbling stone for him. We've got to be careful with our eyes. The desire for things just because they're things, is that really good for us? And then this pride of life, this idea of I want to know more than God. We've got to humble ourselves and, and recognize what he revealed is what I need to know. That's all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it's so hard sometimes to humble ourselves to that point. We want to content ourselves with what God's teaching us. She didn't do that. Feel bad for her. Eric, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about those three things. It's interesting that when, in this situation, if you go back to chapter 2, verse um, 9, and you actually mentioned that, God had made a tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. So he had already fulfilled that desire in a godly way. Yeah. But they decided to fulfill it in an ungodly way. Just mostly why we, we sin, we take something that God has given us that's good, and we use it for wrong. Amen. I, I, I appreciate that. In fact, that's the point I was going to get to, and you, you just nailed it right on the head. Most of the time when we sin, it's not that we've done some just heinous, terrible thing. We've taken something that was meant for good, and we've used it in a way that God had designed it to be used. Uh, someone once used the idea of fire. You know, fire in and of itself is a good thing. A fire that's out of control is terrible. Water in and of itself is a, is a good thing. Water that's out of control, terrible. You know, our relationships, our physical relationships with our spouse is a good thing. Without control, it's damaging and terrible to everybody. And so there are many other aspects we can look at. What God has given us to do, if it's within his confines, is a blessing. It's excellent. Outside of that, it's destructive. And so that's what they've done here. So she is tempted in every way and falls hard. Like I said, I was going to say, I feel sorry for her. She didn't have any other uh, precedent, didn't have anything else, any wisdom from Solomon to look at. She saw these things and all three of these temptations and, and fell on her heart. So she took an eight. Her reasoning, her human reasoning led her to destruction. And then she gave to her husband and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open. Well, the serpent was right. But they saw something they didn't want to see. 
And they were ashamed all of a sudden of their nakedness. You can't unsee that anymore. All of a sudden, between just this married couple, there is shame in their nakedness. And so they sew these fig leaves together. And they make themselves, my version says covering. Some versions say loincloths. I think that's so descriptive. That's the idea. They're covering the private parts because somehow that's causing them shame. I don't know all the details of the aspects of this, but there's now shame involved. We recognize this in our small children when they're growing up. The other little bitty children run around naked. There's no shame. And But one day, all of a sudden, we catch them staring at us if we change in front of them, and there's something different in their look. And then we find that they don't want to be without their diaper or their shorts or whatever anymore in front of us. Something happens. There's something that changes. I don't know how to describe all of it, but there's sort of an innocence that gets lost at a certain point. Whether you actively teach that or not, it just naturally begins to happen. Something has happened here with this knowledge that they can't unlearn. And that's the problem with sin. Once you step across the line, you can't say, oh, let me just forget that I know it's there. And it builds. And so she has crossed over, and now she's brought her husband with her. And they are ashamed, and so they cover their private parts. And then verse 8, perhaps the saddest verse in the Bible to me. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You ever thought about what a beautiful thing this would have been? You hear the Lord coming. And it's interesting, my version says they heard the sound. Anybody have a different word there in verse 8? In verse 10, we're going to find out what this sound is. But there's the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, but there's there's actually another word that's used here. Is that what the translation was? The voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. That's the word here. In verse 10, we'll see it is his voice, because Adam says, I heard you calling out, and I heard your voice, and I was afraid. But I want you to understand that the relationship they have with God in the garden is really the same one we have with God. It's through his voice. It's through his talking to us that we have this fellowship and this communion with him. That's what they had. And when he came speaking to them, they ran. What do we do when we're feeling guilty of sin? We ought to go to the Bible and, and find out how we can repent from it. What do we usually do? I'll shut that Bible up and hide it. And somebody comes and to talk Bible, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to hear God's voice when I'm guilty of my sin. It's exactly what we need. God's going to call them into this repentance that they need. But they heard his voice, and they knew that these fig leaves weren't doing the job, and so what they tried to do with the leaves, they ended up trying to do with the entire tree now. They, they hid behind the tree. And they're afraid of God coming in the cool of the day to be among them. That is so frightening and so sad at the same time that you would run from the presence of God. What has God ever done to scare them away? Nothing. That's what they've done that has turned them away from God. And God's coming to them, even in their state. Sometimes we think that God has rejected us and turns away. God is seeking us. And we'll see this here with Cain especially. His grace is abounding and just comes uh, full force at them. Uh, Our time is running a little short. I want to read verses 9 through 13 and, and finish the text here today, and then we'll pick up tomorrow, God willing, at verse 14. The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God has come down. They've heard the sound of him. He's come down, and he calls out to Adam and says, Where are you? Does God know where Adam is? Yeah. Absolutely. 
then why is that not cynical to ask where are you when he knows where he is? I, we we think that was cynical, wouldn't we? What is the reason he says where are you? You know where you are. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a philosophical aspect even to this question, and I think this is a question we ought to ask ourselves. <laughs> so when God calls out, where are you? The whole Bible is actually saying that. Where are you? Where are you in relation to me? Where are you with, with sin? Where are you? And we need to be asking that question a lot, <laughs> because the Bible will ask us that a lot. So he's called out to Adam, where are you, even though he knows where he is. Besides this philosophical, if you will, aspect, what is he expecting? What is needed here? He needs an answer. Because Adam needs an answer. We think about prayer. God says, uh, Jesus says in the New Testament that the heathen pray these repetitions, but God already knows what you need before you pray. So don't pray like the heathen do. But he also says, pray. Ask God for what you need, even though he already knows before you ask it. Why? Because he won't give it to us until we ask? No, he's already given it to the just and the unjust. The point is, it puts us in our place. When we ask God for what we need, it reminds us who God is and reminds us who we are. It's an important thing for us. Prayer and confession both work the same way. God already knows what we've done before we confess it. It also is the way, as humans, we establish communication. The first things that kids learn to do is to make their needs known to their parents. Their parents already know they need it, but that is, it's powerful. They see that they express themselves and then their needs are met. Yeah. So Absolutely. The same thing for us with our and so God is training them back to dependence on Him. They've turned away from Him. So absolutely, I appreciate that that information. This is what they're doing. God is calling Adam to confess and repent. But to do that, he's, he's got to confess. He's got to speak to God. He's been hiding from God. Now it's interesting. God doesn't force him to do this. God calls out to him. So Adam responds. <clears throat> he said, "I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked." And I hit. Was Adam naked? Didn't he already make a loincloth? How can someone who's already dressed themselves be naked? You ever seen anybody who was dressed but knew they were still naked? I have. You ever been out in public and see somebody doing this or doing this the whole time? You ever been in church and seen somebody doing that? God defines what nakedness is. But our conscience also tells us when we're naked and trying to act like we're not. I saw a, a girl one time, and it was really sad. I mean, she was way underdressed. And you could tell she was trying to be fashionably dressed, but she was uncomfortable. She was covering her chest and covering her leg the whole time. And she was out. She was a young teenage girl with a bunch of young teenage guys, and she was getting a lot of attention. But she understood something wasn't right about that, yet society was telling her, that's right. And so she was in, you could see this, this fight within her. And I felt so sorry, so sad for her. She, I didn't know her. It wasn't a Christian. But I saw that going on. I thought, that's, I see what's going on. I understand what's going on Adam understood that, too. And so he said, I was naked. And he, he'd already hidden behind a tree. Yet he knew he still hadn't done enough. He's naked. And so God asked him another question. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? Does God know? Sure, <laughs> sure he does. He's looking for a confession. We tend to think of sin as just an isolated event. It's just something we did. But sin really is a progression. James talks about his desire that's in us that, that gives birth then to the act. And so we, we go down this, this way, this path of sin. But the way to God is also a path that begins with recognizing our sin, repenting of it, confessing it, and coming in his direction. God's doing the hard work here. He's calling out to Adam and saying, look, stop what you're doing and come to me. And he's trying to draw Adam back to him 
and get Adam to confess. And so he's looking for a confession here. Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? I love how specific God is here. The people who've helped me most in my life when I'm struggling with something are people who know what I struggle with and they ask me specifically about that. They don't just say, hey, how you doing? And then I can say, I'm all right, because I'm thinking about all the things I'm not doing wrong. <laughs> when it's something I'm struggling with and someone comes and says, how are you doing about this? How'd you do today about this? That's when it helps. Very specific. Eric, you got a comment? Oh, a philosophical question. Uh, verse 5, the devil says you're going to know what's good and evil. And it's kind of interesting when God says, did you do what I told you not to do? Which meant that if you did it, you know it was wrong before you did it. Uh-huh. Which is kind of... Yeah, at least now he does. <laughs> now that he's done it. He's got this knowledge. I don't know if this is part of the experiential knowledge. Gary, do you have a, a thought about that? I think we can have an understanding of commandment and obedience even prior to having a full understanding of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Um, and so I think we, we know they understood what God said, and they understood the concept of obeying and disobeying, whereas now they have a much greater awareness of, of what evil really means. Yeah, there's an inter- interesting inverse of that in Hebrews 5 when it says Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Jesus could not obey. He's God. Yet he learned obedience, as we understand it, by the things he suffered by submitting himself to God's will. So yeah, in the same aspect, this would be the inverse of that, I guess. They would have understood the disobedience without having to disobey first, but now they know it experientially. Uh, it's a good thing to think about. At any rate, he asked for, the, for Adam, did you eat from this tree? And so we expect a confession. Does Adam confess? <laughs> yes, thank you. We're going to get that. You're right. That's And you're the first person in these kind of studies that has, that has brought that up, but you're right. In a good confession, what is usually the first word? Thank you. I was wrong. I sinned. I messed up. In a good confession, we humble ourselves. We put ourselves at the very first part of the sin. In a bad confession, like Adam's, where is the I? If we, if we admit it at all, it's at the very end, and it's only because all of these circumstances and all this, you made me born this way, I've been through all this terrible stuff, and so of course I had to do it. And that's that's not a confession. That's a justification or also a passing the buck. And so he didn't confess in essence. He did pass the blame, as someone said, and before your answer, who did he blame? <laughs> Looks like he blamed Eve. But who do you really blame? Thank you. <laughs> the woman you gave me. He blamed God. And I want you to understand, when you sin and you try to justify it, you always end up blaming God. If it wasn't this wife who doesn't do things the way she's supposed to, then I wouldn't have sinned by cussing her out or whatever it was I did. It weren't for these bratty kids that I didn't raise the right way <laughs> that you gave me. If it wasn't for this lousy job that doesn't pay enough, I wouldn't have to rob that store. In the end, we're always blaming God. And the biggest one these days is, if I wasn't born this way, that's that's become, that's almost law now. You're just born that way. It's not true. Can the mass murderer say, I was just born that way? Well, almost now, you can almost say that too. Pedophilia is now trying to be declared a mental illness and it can't be, can't be jailed for it. It's just a sexual illness that you have, and so you've got to, got to deal with it now. It's ridiculous. So it's not born that way. That's, that's blaming God. It's not the woman you gave me. But it, what's interesting about this is God almost seems to accept his confession here. 
He doesn't challenge Adam just yet. We're going to only see that tomorrow, God willing. He turns to Eve and says, what have you done? So, does Eve confess? No, because the eye is at the end of her phrase too. Um, so, who does she blame? Where'd serpent come from? <laughs> she blamed God too. She wasn't as open about it. She was less noble, I guess, even than Adam. But if it weren't for that nasty old serpent that she made, was cunning enough to deceive me. I know I did wrong, and we may get to that at the end, but a real confession will deal with what we did and say, yes, I did it, and I need help. Not all these things caused me to do it. That's not a confession. And sometimes we need to really think about our confession before God because we end up just throwing the blame around, and we're really turning the dollar on God. God is not the reason for our sin. God is the only way we can escape it. And so... They've both thrown God under the bus here. Lord willing, tomorrow we'll begin at verse 14 and we'll see the consequence for their sin. Right now we've just seen it happen. Greg, you've got a comment and then we'll take some time for questions. I know we're at five already. Appreciate your patience. Uh, just two things real quick. Uh, this idea of the knowledge of good and evil, the only other place that I'm aware of we find that in the scriptures is Deuteronomy 1 in verse 39 where it talks about children to this day, do not have a knowledge of yes. evil. So we, we see that as we grow, we have a very similar experience to Adam and Eve, um, being at one point in a very similar state uh, that, than they are. The other thing in verse 8, it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Later on in Acts chapter 3, Peter is going to promise that times of refreshing are going to come from the presence of the right. Lord. It's amazing to see that contrast. Uh, where we stand in relationship to God, His presence can either be a great blessing to us, or it can be a very fearful thing. Amen. Good point. Comments or other questions before we finish in verse 13 for today? I appreciate your patience. This is, these are long. It's been three hours of studies. And I really appreciate your, your allowing me to share these things with you. Some of you have told me how fun this is. I agree. It's a lot of fun. But it's also very serious stuff that we're dealing with. And so let's take this home and chew on it. Allow the Lord to process these words in our hearts. Uh, the, the slides are there. There's a lot more verses on the slides that will confirm a lot of these things that we've been talking about. I pray that you'll make good use of those as well. And I just thank you so much for your time and, and allowing me to be a part of this and sharing in this with you.